Psalm 13, and we are calling this talk today, How Long, Lord? How long, Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts, and day after day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? Look on me and answer, Lord my God. Give light to my eyes, or I will sleep in death. And my enemy will say, I have overcome him. And my foes will rejoice when I fall. But I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing the Lord's praise, for he has been good to me. And God's people said, Amen. Some of you are teachers, I know, and therefore you will appreciate this story this morning. It's a story that I read just this week of a reception teacher who was helping one of her little children put on his shoes, put his boots on after school. Actually, this was the, the tenth child that she had helped in succession that afternoon, and I think that this teacher deserved a medal. She struggled a little bit, though, with this child. The boots didn't seem to fit very well. In fact, there was a fair amount of pulling and pushing. And by the time she got the second boot on this child, she'd worked up quite a sweat. And then she almost whimpered when the little boy said, Miss, they're on the wrong feet. <laughs> and she looked down, and sure enough, they were, and it wasn't easy, any, any easier pulling the boots off than putting them on in the first place, but she managed to keep her cool, and they worked together to get the boots back on, and this time they were on the right feet. And he stood up and announced, Miss, these aren't my boots. <laughs> and rather than scream or cry or in exasperation, she just bit her tongue, and she said to the little lad, well, why didn't you tell me so? Once again, they struggled to help him pull the ill-fitting boots off his feet. He then said, they're my brother's boots, and mum made me wear them this morning. <laughs> now, by this time, she didn't know where to laugh or cry. But as a true professional, she mustered up enough grace here to wrestle the boots onto his feet once again. And then she said to the little boy, now, where did you put your mittens? To which he replied, I stuffed them in the toes of my boots, miss. <laughs> a great story. And my question to you this morning is how patient are you? If you were to give yourself a mark out of 10, are you a, an A-star kind of student in patience? Or are you someone a little bit like me that would fail miserably? Now, I'm impatient, and I really admit it. I'm the person who's always trying to assess which supermarket checkout is moving faster than the others, and which line of traffic during rush hour on the motorway is going to get me to my destination quickest. I often get wound up when I'm in a rush, but other people aren't. I get especially frustrated by people who I send an email to or text or maybe leave a message on their phones and say, please get back to me ASAP, and then I don't hear from them for several days or a week. Just be warned. <laughs> I know what you'll do. You'll probably do it on purpose now. 
It appears that the writer of Psalm 30, King David, had a problem with impatience too. But he was impatient with God. How long, Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and day after day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? And on four occasions there in two verses, David asks the question, how long? And it appears that David was in a hurry, but God wasn't. And I don't know if you've ever experienced that in your lives, that you're in a hurry, but God isn't. That you have perhaps prayed because you needed an answer to something very important in your life. Or because you needed God to intervene in your circumstances. How long, Lord, before you get me out of this situation? It's killing me. How long, Lord? And then you can put a whole long list of uh, your own details in there. And you pray, and you pray, and you pray. But heaven is silent. And you might be tempted to say... God doesn't care about me. He's not interested in my life. Is God there at all? And we all know, don't we, that God doesn't give us what we ask for when we ask for it. Because if he did that, we would be spoiled children. And besides, not everything that we ask for is necessarily good for us or at least is not God's best for us. I remember once reading about Billy Graham's wife. Billy Graham was that great American evangelist who died, was it earlier this year or last year, age 99. And um, Billy Graham's wife, Ruth, was once uh, said that she was so glad that God didn't give her everything that she asked for when she asked for it. Otherwise, if God had, she would have been married to the wrong man several times over. Sometimes God says yes, but no is an equally good answer from a God who knows everything, knows every eventuality, and a God that we know is good. He is good at all times. He isn't just loving, but he is love. He is the very epitome of goodness and of love. And of course, there's a, a third answer to that. Yes, no, and wait. I suppose it's a little bit like the, the traffic lights, green, amber, and red. The green representing the times that God says yes to us. The, times, uh, the, the red light represents the times that God says no to us. And then there are other times, the amber times. It doesn't mean that God is saying no permanently, but it's just no, no. And I suppose it's a little bit like a six-year-old asking her father to teach her to drive. The answer is no, obviously, but it's not a permanent no. It's no for now. It's not only against the law, but her dad will realize that she is too small to reach the pedals and she won't manage the steering wheel and so forth. How long, Lord, will you forget me forever? And most of us, I imagine, would probably put up with anything if we knew that our trial would come to an end. Isn't that right? If we knew that there was an end time to our trial, we would put up with just about anything at all. You know, it's a little bit like Joseph in the Old Testament. Now, Joseph went through an awful lot. He was sold as a slave in Egypt. He was then accused of attempted rape. Then he was put in prison. He was forgotten about. He was alone in a foreign land with nothing more than his memories and his regrets to keep him company. It was incredibly tough for him. 
And I am sure that if he had known that he was going to be in Potiphar's house in Egypt for so many years, and after that he was going to be in prison for so many years, and after that God was going to release him to fulfill all of the God's purposes, all the purposes that God had for him, I think that he would have coped far better than not knowing what was happening next. You see, if we were to know how long our trial or struggle is going to last, then I'm sure that it would be far more bearable for us. And uh, some of you might be this morning asking that question, how long? How long, maybe over a prodigal child or grandchild? How long, Lord, before they turn to you? How much more heartache must I go through? Uh, And there's an intensity here in David's words. How long, Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? When I read those words this week, I I thought, uh, I was reminded of an incident a few months back when uh, Julie and I were um, babysitting our uh, grandchildren, Emily and Eli, and they'd come over for a sleepover. And uh, we were in the lounge and we were chatting away. And then the, the, the football results came on the television. And Swansea City, my team, was at the bottom of the Premiership division at that time. And they needed to win their last couple of games. Otherwise, they would have got relegated to a lower division and having to need, the need to play against lesser teams like Birmingham City <laughs> and Aston Villa. And that was the last thing that I wanted. And for a few moments, I took my eyes off my grandchildren, Emily and Eli, And I watched the results as they came on the screen. I wasn't rude. I continued the conversation with them, but I was distracted. But it wasn't good enough, for Emily at least. And um, she came over to me and she put her her hands on my cheeks and she turned them (laughs) so that I had to look at her and in her best teacher voice, Grandad, look at me. And that's what David appears to be doing here in asking uh, God to turn his face towards him. Don't hide your face from me. Look at me, God. Look at me. And from what we know about David's life, there were those times when God certainly appeared to be absent and when heaven was silent. Most of you, I'm sure, will know the story of uh, David, the shepherd boy who became king. One day he was out in the fields tending his sheep. And then Samuel the prophet came along and um, interviewed all of his brothers first, but then interviewed him and anointed him to be the next king of Israel. But as we know from this story, this didn't happen straight away and it took many years to happen. And during that time, David became an enemy to the present king. King Saul. And life for David at that time was incredibly difficult. He was a runaway, a fugitive in the land where he would become king. And maybe, just maybe, in fact, I've got a sneaky suspicion that it probably is the background of him writing these words in this psalm. (laughs) This psalm was really about that time in his life. How long, Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? You see, David knew that he would be king one day, but that for him wasn't coming quick enough. Again, he was in a hurry, but God wasn't. 
Maybe there were some things that God wanted him to learn first. And maybe in our lives today, there are things that God wants us also to learn first. How long must I wrestle with my thoughts? How long, day after day, have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? And some of you here this morning might find David's prayer the prayer that you can see there on screen in front of you, helpful in expressing what is in your heart just now. Because maybe, just maybe, you have prayed that prayer very recently yourself. And you have said to the Lord, how long, Lord? How long, Lord, before you fulfill that promise that you made to me so many years ago? How long, Lord, will my son or daughter continue to resist you? How long, Lord, will they remain hardened against your love? How long, Lord, before you introduce me to Mr. Wright? Well, Mrs. Wright. There's nobody with a surname of Wright here, is there? I thought it just might be a God moment, that's all. <laughs> you know, last week, Martin gives a great talk on Psalm 139, which speaks of God being everywhere present and all-knowing, a God who misses nothing. You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar, you discern my going out and my lying down. You're familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you, Lord, know it completely. You hem me in behind and before, and you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there, your hand will guide me and your right hand will hold me fast. God is everywhere. We cannot escape from him. We cannot run from his presence. He knows us. He's familiar with all our ways. Even as we open our mouths to speak, he knows what's coming out. That's more than I know myself on times. Two weeks ago, I spoke on Psalm 46. There was a similar message. God is our refuge and strength, an ever-present help in trouble. Ever-present help in trouble. Now, I don't know if you found those uh, scriptures a little bit strange in the light of what we are studying this morning. You know, one minute David is speaking about God being ever-present, and the next minute he is speaking about God being absent. How long, Lord, will you forget me forever? David is not being schizophrenic here. David is being human. And in these Psalms, David is showing his true humanity. He is showing us that he has high points, days of soaring faith. But there are other days, days when he was in the pits. Days when he could take the world on for God and days when he doubted God's existence at all. Days when he was aware of God's presence, his, his real, intimate, vibrant presence in his life. And other days when he was tempted to believe that God had forgotten him. You see, David was human. And we are also human. And there are times, I'm sure, when you, if you're a Christian today, you've experienced the presence of God in your life. When the, the, the times with God were tangible. But there are other times when you've been frustrated and you've wrestled with your thoughts and your doubts. 
Times perhaps when you've had great faith and times when you've been full of unbelief. And it seems as though David here was struggling at different levels. In those first uh, few verses, first couple of verses there, we can see David struggling in his spiritual life. You can see him struggling emotionally and also physically. Spiritually, he feels that God has forsaken him, hidden his face from him. How long, Lord, will you forget me forever? Emotionally, how long must I wrestle with my thoughts and day after day have sorrow in my heart? You see, he's overwhelmed with distress and you could say that he was depressed. And physically, how long will my enemy triumph over me? How long will that gloating continue by those who have something over me as he wallows in his own misery? You see, God has created us body, soul, and spirit. And we can be challenged in, in all of these areas of our lives. And I've come across Christians from time to time who can be rather critical of some other Christians who perhaps might suffer with such things as depression. And they see depression as essentially a spiritual battle that needs to be overcome by faith. And they claim or at least some of the Christians I've met over the years, claim that those who suffer from depression or any mental illness for that matter are not living in the victory that God designs them to live in. And they are told, claim your victory in Jesus and therefore add further guilt to the person who is already sinking in darkness. And I would say, if it were only that simple, it's not. You see, we are body, soul, and spirit. And depression or mental illness can be caused by a number of reasons or a number of ways. For example, temperament. Some people are temperamentally inclined to depression. It may be a part of their genetic makeup. I'm predisposed to having high blood pressure and cholesterol. See what you do to me? No, it's not you at all. It's genetics. Okay? It runs in the family. And similarly, in the same way, some people are susceptible to depression and mental illness and has nothing at all to do with faith or lack of faith. Illness. Again, illness can drain physical strength. It can lead to depression. I don't know about you, but when I am unwell, I find it much more difficult to pray than at other times. Exhaustion can also leave a person quite open to depression and the feeling of abandonment. Then there's the, the letdown after some great effort, if you like, the, the valley experience after the mountaintop experience. And uh, when you come down from this adrenaline high, can also often leave a person in a time of depression. Remember Elijah the prophet who sat under a broom tree and uh, asked God that he would take his life. The previous day, it was just the previous day that he had won this great victory for God on Mount Carmel against the, the, the false prophets of Baal. And all that this guy needed was some food and a rest and God arranged that for him. And also, there is pressure from spiritual and natural enemies that can push us towards depression. To put it another way, Jesus uh, spoke of... Um, our enemies being the world, the flesh, and the devil. Now, what did he mean by that? Well, the world, 
means essentially non-Christian society. Non-Christian society has a different outlook and a different mentality, different attitudes to many of the things that we have. And it's not always easy to be a Christian in 21st Western society um, where we would embrace and hold to God's values in a non-Christian society. And it's never easy to stand against the tide of popular opinion. The world, the flesh. We are all born with an inclination to sin. You don't need to teach a child how to sin. It comes quite naturally. Those of you who've got kids and grandchildren, you'll know this. You don't need to provide lessons in being spiteful and selfish alongside maths and English. You don't need to do that. And Paul in Romans chapter 7 speaks about this. He speaks of this struggle of not being able to do the things that we desire to do and doing the things that we don't want to do. The flesh is weak. The world, the flesh, and the devil. It was a great scholar and writer, C.S. Lewis, who once said that it would be foolish of us to ignore the existence of spiritual forces and also foolish to have an unhealthy interest in them. We need a balance. And there are several reasons. This is, the, this is my, my main point here. There are several reasons for the struggles that we encounter in life. And if you are witnessing to a fellow believer who is going through the mill and is really struggling with life's issues and, uh, and depression and turmoil, please do not tell them that they have done something wrong or that they are not living in victory or that all that they need is a little bit more faith. That is pretty bad theology. It is also hugely unhelpful to the person who is going through that tough time. They don't need a dose of misplaced guilt on top of everything else. Let's get one thing straight here. God did not forsake David. God did not forget David. God did not hide his face from him. But that is essentially what David felt. It was his perception of the truth. And there are two extremes that people can fall into when we speak of feelings. Some people say... Feelings are not important. They've got nothing at all to do with our relationship with God, which is all about faith. That isn't true. That's wrong. God has given us, thank God, the ability to feel. We can feel anger. We feel love, care, sorrow, compassion. And God himself feels all of those same things. Jesus, remember, he was moved to tears at the graveside of his friend Lazarus alongside Mary and Martha, the sisters of Lazarus. As Jesus came into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday on that donkey, he wept over Jerusalem. Jesus showed anger when he went into the temple out of courts and there were these money sellers doing their business. And he threw over a few tables. Gentle Jesus, meek and mild as we used to sing as school children. And he made a whip out of cords and he got rid of them. He was angry. My father's house shall be a house of prayer, not a den of robbers. There are many other examples of Jesus demonstrating love and, and care out of feelings of compassion. We're told in Matthew's gospel that Jesus looked to the crowds and he saw them 
and had compassion on them that they were sheep without a shepherd. And you see, we are made in the image of God and our feelings are an expression of that image. They are a gift from God. That's one extreme, the people that say feelings don't matter, but there's another extreme. And the other extreme is where people are ruled by their feelings. Essentially, they believe whatever reality their feelings present them. So if they're feeling unloved or abandoned by God, then they believe that to be true. And I think that's dangerous because our feelings are never entirely trustworthy. Our feelings are affected by our fallenness. And just because I might feel that God has forsaken me, it doesn't mean that he has. Just because I might feel on occasions that God doesn't love me any law or care for me, that should not be accepted as my reality. Let's move on. Verse 3. David prays, look on me and answer, Lord my God. Give light to my eyes or I will sleep in death and my enemy will say, I have overcome him. And my foes will rejoice when I fall. It's a great phrase there. Give light to my eyes. And when I read that uh, earlier on this week, it reminded me of the Apostle Paul praying for the Ephesian Christians. As you know, in, in Ephesians in the New Testament, there are two wonderful prayers, one in chapter 1 and one in chapter 3, two of the greatest prayers in the New Testament. And in this first prayer that Paul prays for the Ephesians in chapter 1, it's a prayer that he prays for their enlightening. And this is what he says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. What a great phrase that is. Pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the glorious, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his saints and his incomparably great power for us who believe. And in the middle of struggles and difficulties to pray those words, give light to my eyes or let the eyes of my heart be enlightened I think that is a great prayer and I would encourage you to pray that prayer because what we are doing there, we are praying that God in the midst of our struggles and difficulties, we are praying that we might understand God's perspective, that we might see what the trial is all about should God allow us, that we might grasp something of what God is trying to teach us through those times. You see, God answered David's prayer and David is given a new perspective. And in the following verse, verse 5, he says, But I trust in your unfailing love and my heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing the Lord's praise for he has been good to me. Now, can you notice what's happened here? In the last couple of verses, there's a change of direction. That David has a change of heart. The mist has cleared. He was talking about God's absence, but now he is talking about God's unfailing love and about his trusting in God. And the Lord has given light to his eyes. He's now able to see God's unfailing love and God's salvation and God's goodness. And for David, that was a defining moment. And I doubt whether his feelings changed that, mu that much, but he makes a choice. And his choice is to trust I trust in your unfailing love. 
Maybe that he looked back over his life and realized that God had never let him down. Maybe that uh, David would have been very happy being a part of our congregation as we sometimes sing on a Sunday morning, your love never fails, it never gives up, it never runs out on me. And as he looked back, he got fresh courage to look at his present struggles in the face. And David writes here, my heart rejoices in your salvation. He hadn't experienced that salvation. He hadn't experienced that rescue from God just yet. But he was willing to put his trust and his faith in the unfailing love of God. He'd made a decision. I will sing the Lord's praise for he has been good to me. Again, it was a decision not to wallow in self-pity, not to point the accusing finger of blame in the direction of his enemies, but he had made a decision to sing his praises to God. I think there's something quite wonderful about that. And I've often said here, you know, that um, when we do this to start our Sunday mornings in this place, it's not to fill in. I've said that before. It's a wonderful, wonderful part of what we do as we're expressing our praise and honour to God. It may we've had a horrible week. Maybe that everything has gone wrong. But it's taking us from that place consciously and bringing us into the presence of God where we are of a mindset which is now, in a sense, a, a spiritual mindset. And despite David's troubles, he recognised that God was still good to him. I know that we all have uh, favourite passages in the scriptures. And one of my most favourite uh, passages is found in the Old Testament prophet of Habakkuk. And uh, it's in chapter 3. And this is what Habakkuk says. It's one of the great confessions of faith in the scriptures. H- Habakkuk 3.17. Though the fig tree does not bud and there are no grapes on the vines, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls. Now so far this is negative, isn't it? Negative, 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 negative. Verse 18, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Saviour. The Sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer and enables me to tread on the heights. And some of you here this morning, and maybe some of those listening on podcast, are hurting and you are feeling right now pretty abandoned by God. You are sensing that heaven is silent. You have even lately questioned whether God exists at all. Where are you, God? How must I carry on experiencing what I am? Where are you? And just as this was a defining moment for David, this can also be a defining moment for us. Despite David's impatience and feelings of abandonment, he chose to say, but I trust in your unfailing love. Habakkuk, despite crop failures and no harvest, there was a yet in his vocabulary. And that's the challenge this morning. Is there a yet in our vocabulary? Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Saviour. Maybe this morning that you are struggling in all sorts of ways. 
Maybe you're asking that question, how long, Lord? Things which are so heavy upon your hearts. It may be that the person sat next to you don't know anything at all about this. But you know this is heavy upon your heart. How long, Lord, before you intervene? There are four things to do. And I'll leave this with you this morning. Keep praying. Don't give up. Even though it may appear to you that God is very far away just now. Secondly, keep trusting. I think it's relatively easy to have faith when things are going well. As Brenda mentioned in that first song that we sang this morning, blessed be your name in a land which is plentiful where the streams of abundance flow. It's easy to sing blessed be your name in those times and to have faith in those times. But it is not so easy when we are not in those times, when we are in the desert place or when we are walking through the wilderness. But that is where the real test of faith is for us. Thirdly, keep rejoicing. David doesn't rejoice because of his trials, but he rejoices in them. And that's very, very important. You know, to rejoice because of our trials would be weird, wouldn't it? That's, uh, don't get that. Masochistic, stoic at the very least. No, we don't rejoice because of our, our sufferings, but we rejoice in them. And we can rejoice in God and in his salvation and in his goodness and unfailing love. And fourthly, Keep, worship, keep worshipping. In spite of everything God is, uh, that David has been through, he is able to see the goodness of God. I will sing to the Lord, for he has been good to me. And when trials come, I would encourage you, and I know that some people, and maybe I am speaking to you this morning, when those trials come, when time gets tough, and when struggles come in life, I've known Christians to say, well, where is God? And instead of coming closer and instead of coming and allowing other Christians to wrap their arms around us, they move away from fellowship rather than to where their help can be found. And I would say to you this morning, if, if, if that's you, and if that's your temptation, and if you become very much hit and miss in your meeting with other Christians, whether through midweek meetings or on Sundays, because stuff is going wrong and, and, and life is hard at the moment, then I would encourage you. You're walking in the wrong direction. Because not away from God and from God's people, but to God's people, that's where you'll get your help. Let's pray.